It is, as uh, Mihai suggested, a hectic season, uh, but that's one of the joys of gathered worship on Sunday morning. We can pause, we can reflect, and we can meditate on the things of eternal significance. Uh, all those of us who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, let me extend a greeting to you, and I invite you to open the Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Let's hear God's word together. A bit of context, if you're, just, if you're new today, haven't been following along, the Apostle Paul, who is at the twilight of his life, is writing instructions to his younger ministerial colleague, Timothy. So that's what's happening here. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we confess that you are light through and through. We confess that all of your words are holy and pure, that all of your ways with us are right and good and holy. Heavenly Father, we too desire to reflect your holiness. We want our words, our attitudes, our behavior to be righteous and to reflect you. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your word this morning and use it as a means to bring us into greater conformity with your character. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would raise up here at CBC men and women whose lives are defined by godliness, a profound reverence for you and obedience to your word, and whose lives are therefore worthy of imitation and emulation. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be a community defined by your word, reflecting your holy character. We pray, Lord, for your blessing on this time in your word. We pray that it would be profitable and that you'd be honored. Amen. Suppose that you had to finish the rest of this sentence. How would you finish it? And, here, and here's the sentence, or at least the first part. Even though princes sit plotting against me, I. Even though princes sit plotting against me, I 
what? How do you fill in that blank? When you have powerful enemies and they're coming together and plotting your downfall, what do you do? Do you call your powerful friends and call in some favors to counteract uh, your powerful enemies? Uh, Do you give way to despair and anxiety? What do you do when princes sit plotting uh, against you? And here's what the psalmist writes, Psalm 119, 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. There is perhaps a counterintuitive response. There are powerful enemies who are conspiring my ruin, and I am going to meditate on the word of God. I'm going to draw strength from its riches. That may not be our first response, but it was the response of the psalmist. And it underscores the power of Scripture to sustain us and comfort us, even in the most most dire moments of life. Uh, Scripture is not just for when all is going uh, well and we have the luxury of engaging in some Bible study. Scripture is for the trenches. It is necessary uh, and useful for living a fruitful life. And our passage today contains one of the great passages of Scripture on Scripture, 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. And that passage occurs in the context, as we've seen, of the Apostle Paul giving instructions to his young ministry colleague. Paul is about to die, and he is preparing Timothy for life on the other side uh, without Paul. And he says to Timothy in this passage, in essence, three things. Number one, Timothy, follow my example. Follow my example. Number two, endure persecution. And three, recognize the usefulness of Scripture. Recognize the usefulness of Scripture. Paul Paul tells Timothy, reminds him that you have followed my teaching. And followed here means considered, paid attention to, of observed uh, my life, my teaching. Uh, everything he says here in verse 10 and 11 is comprehensive. You have observed my instruction, my ministry, and even my heart and my life, Timothy. You have observed my teaching. You, you know what the apostolic message concerning the Son of God and his spotless life and his death and resurrection is. You are well grounded in the central truths of the faith, the apostolic message. You know my teaching. But Timothy's awareness of Paul's teaching wasn't separated from an awareness of Paul's lifestyle, his behavior, his conduct. He knew how Paul lived. He knew Paul's aims, his goals in life. There was a familiarity with the apostles' mode of life, not just his teaching. And Timothy was instructed in the things of God in the context of this kind of personal relationship with Paul. Timothy is aware of Paul's faith which means a trust in God, a trust in the word of God. Timothy had front row seats in Paul's life to to see how Paul's confidence in God, not confidence in himself, worked itself out again and again in difficult circumstances. Timothy was able to see all of that, how Paul's trust in God was manifest in life. 
Timothy was able to observe Paul's patience. That's an undervalued, underappreciated character quality. Patience. Patience is what you need when people don't do what they're supposed to do. Patience is what you need when you're a teacher and you have spent great energy explaining a concept to the class. There's a student who hasn't been listening, and so you've got to say it all over again, right? That's the quality you need. Patience is the opposite of irritability, outbursts of anger, and frustration. Patient doesn't vent. It doesn't explode. It doesn't become... Uh, worked up, patience, stops, considers, and answers wisely. Patience, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is the fruit of love. When you love someone, you don't blow up at them, at them. you don't become irritable with them, you respond calmly. Uh, may the Lord give us more and more patience. Uh, may we see the irritability that contaminates our life and speech for what it is, a sin against God. Uh, irritability is a big deal. We don't often even recognize it as a sin. Uh, it gently contaminates our speech, perhaps with our spouses and our, ch our children, and we don't see it for what it is, sin. An essential quality, an essential aspect of uh, being like Christ is being patient. Paul was patient, and he calls Timothy to walk in that same patience. He reminds Timothy of his love. You can't read Paul's letters and not see on every page a depth of affection for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. At one point, the apostle Paul is worked up over the Thessalonian Christians. He has had to leave the city of Thessalonica because of persecution and opposition, and he doesn't know how these new believers are faring. They're relatively young. He's concerned about them. Have they been tempted? Have they been led astray? And so in his anguish, he sends Timothy to see how they are. And Paul sends word, they're doing well. And when Paul hears that they are doing well, he overflows with delight. First Thessalonians 3, 8 through 9. Now we live. Now we're alive. If you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. When's the last time you said, I'm alive because my brothers and sisters are doing well spiritually? We're so myopic and fixated on me, me, me. When Paul heard that these new converts were flourishing spiritually, he says, I'm alive. I rejoice because you're doing well. Whatever else it means to walk with Christ, it means this that you are a person marked by love for others. Lately, I've been praying, Lord, put your love in my heart for this person and that person and that person. Uh, it's a prayer I'd encourage you to utter as well. Lord, put your love, the great love that you have in yourself for these individuals in my life, put that love in my heart. And the Apostle Paul was marked by this commitment to the well-being of others. He loved and then he talks about his steadfastness, his endurance. Uh, he persevered in proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. 
even as he goes on to say in verse 11, even in the face of unrelenting hostility and pain. Paul was a man of flesh and blood the way that we are. And yet, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, he endured, he pressed on proclaiming the word, experiencing violence and hostility at every turn. He specifically mentions the persecutions and sufferings that occurred in Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra. You can read about this, these persecutions in Acts 14. This is the region that Timothy is from. Uh, Paul was chased out of Antioch and Iconium uh, by Jews who opposed his message, and he was stoned at Lystra and left for dead. And this is actually just a small sampling of the kind of persecution Paul endured throughout his life. Faced opposition, violence, physical pain, suffering of every kind, and yet Paul says he endured. He pressed on fulfilling the mission and the calling that the Lord Jesus had given to him. Why does Paul identify all these things? Why does he remind Timothy of what he knows? Because you've observed my ministry, you know my life, you know my love, you know my faith. Why is he reminding Timothy of all these things? Because this is the pattern of faithfulness that Timothy is meant to walk in. This is what faithfulness in life and ministry looks like for Timothy. So Paul is reminding Timothy of the example that he has set. And he is saying, follow in my footsteps. And that reveals something significant about how we grow in holiness and conformity to Christ. We need to look at examples of faithfulness around us. We need to follow, to observe, and consider those examples, and then imitate them. This is an essential aspect of being a human being. How is it that you grow up into adulthood as a child? You watch your parents. They model a certain way of life, good or bad, or mixed, and you imitate uh, their example. And this is essential in, in growing in Christ-likeness. We look at the people around us. We look at godly men and women. We see their faithfulness. We see how they pray, how they speak to their spouses, how they raise children, how they work, and, and so on. And we follow in their footsteps. This is actually a really crucial theme in the New Testament and in Paul. For instance, he writes 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you want to follow Christ? Well, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, Hebrews 13.7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look at them, observe, and do what they do. Is it possible that we've neglected this essential ingredient in the pursuit of holiness? We get prayer, we get scripture reading and meditation and reflection, or at least I hope we do, right? We pursue God that way. But another piece of this puzzle, growing like Jesus, is spending time with those who are godly. Their holiness is contagious. It rubs off on us as we consider and watch. So uh, one thing to do is get to know godly men and women, brothers and sisters who are further along. Watch them. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Get to know the older saints in our congregation who have walked with Jesus for a long time and benefit from their wisdom. Uh, that assumes, of course, relational proximity. You can't observe someone's life like this from a distance. You have to get close. Holiness 
and growth in holiness happens in the context of close relationship and community. So that's one side of it. If you want to grow in holiness, spend time with those who are mature in Christ and learn from them. Watch them, observe them, follow their way of life. The other side of the coin, though, is as you walk with the Lord, and by God's grace, you begin to reflect Jesus, bring people into your life so they can see how it's done. Imperfectly, of course, but so they can see how to raise children, how to pray, how to talk to your spouse, and so on. Erin Wheeler talks about the experience of disciple-making, helping others follow Jesus, and she writes, in discipling these women, I tried to instruct and question them, discuss books together, and pray, but they would tell me later that often the best teaching came from simply watching me. We need that for ourselves and also to give it to others. They watched God use my weakness in fighting for patience when the day had long since worn thin, This is our confidence, not that we have the perfect home or well-behaved children, but that in the muck and mire, God's spirit is at work. Even in our weakness, God uses our words to warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, comfort the weak, and show patience to everyone all for his glory. God uses even our struggles and the imperfections uh, to correct and to help our brothers and sisters. It's in the, it, and that's honestly one of the things that you need to learn as a follower of Jesus, isn't it? How do you deal with sin? How do you deal with the brokenness of life? And that's one of the things we do when we open our lives to others. We show them how to follow Jesus in the muck and the mire. So this modeling and imitation is essential to our spiritual growth, and it's essential to helping others grow in Christ. Well, one essential aspect that Paul especially emphasizes, one essential aspect of following in his footsteps is enduring suffering. And this has been a repeated emphasis in 2 Timothy. Again and again, Paul has called Timothy to endure suffering for the gospel. If you're going to be faithful, Timothy, it will be costly. But there is no other way, Timothy. Press on in the path of faithfulness, which is also the path of suffering, but it is the right path. Notice in verse 12, Paul generalizes from his experience of persecution and says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a remarkable statement. Godly means that there is a profound reverence for Christ, an awareness of his majesty and glory that leads to practical obedience. And where there is a seriousness about obeying Jesus, there will be persecutions and opposition of various sorts. Jesus himself says, John 15, 19 through 20, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We shouldn't be surprised that as we take seriously the commands of our Lord and attempt to live them out, we will face opposition of uh, different kinds. It could be something like insults and mockery, uh, being ostracized socially, losing relationships, not getting promoted at work or indeed losing your job, uh, lawsuits and even death. Whatever form persecution takes, we can be certain that as we get serious about the work of following Jesus, there will be substantial opposition from the world. The world hates God. It's antagonistic to him. It is antagonistic to the church, and it is antagonistic toward those who seek to live out the principles of Scripture. 
Paul's pattern is not unique to him, but all those who desire to lead godly lives will face persecution. This is the path of faithfulness. And he's reminded Timothy, and by extension us, again and again. This is what it means to follow Jesus, and we should resolve that, yes, we are indeed willing to face even this kind of opposition from the world out of love for Christ. There is a kind of counterfeit loyalty to Jesus that Scripture speaks about, and this is a loyalty to Jesus that goes all the way up to the moment it becomes difficult to identify with him. When the world begins to push back, when there is a cost, this counterfeit loyalty falls away. Mark 4, 16 through 17, Jesus says, When they hear the word, speaking of a certain class of individuals, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So these are people who initially respond very positively to the message of Christianity. They respond with joy. But when life becomes difficult, when there is a cost of following Jesus, they turn away. But true faith, genuine faith, endures and perseveres even in the face of opposition. Even when all others begin to peel away and become disloyal to Jesus, even when life is difficult, and we don't know where Jesus is taking us, true faith continues to follow Christ. We recognize that as Christian teaching becomes more and more antithetical to the values of the surrounding culture, there will be an increasingly high price to pay for our loyalty to Jesus. And in light of what Paul says to Timothy, we need to resolve even now that we will pay whatever price needs to be paid for the, out of a desire to confess Jesus out as Lord and uh, out of a desire to live out his truth. This is the path of faithfulness. There is no other path. Now, what, what is it that sustained Paul and what is it that comforts us as we receive verse 12? Uh, there is indeed persecution. Paul writes in verse 11, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. In what sense did the Lord rescue him? Was Paul protected from getting stoned? No, not rescued in that sense, not rescued in the sense that he was protected from all of the hard things that he endured. So in what sense was he rescued? In the sense that the Lord Jesus Christ caused him to endure and brought him safely through the persecution to the other side. Jesus was there with Paul in the furnace and he brought Paul safely to the other side. And that is exactly what our Lord will do for us. Later in the letter, Paul speaks of being left by himself at his defense, in his trial. Uh, he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When all other helps fail, the help of Christ never fails. And so our consolation, as we recognize this truth that if we're going to be obedient to Jesus, there will be persecution of one kind or another. Our comfort is not that we possess the inner strength to face that persecution or that we are ready or that we will know exactly what is involved in our persecution. That's not where our comfort lies. Our comfort is 
Jesus will be with us. He will provide the spiritual strength and resources that we need to endure and be faithful to the end. So whatever comes, the Lord Jesus Christ will provide the supernatural strength to his people that they need to face opposition and triumph over it. That's our consolation. That was Paul's strength. Then having introduced the inevitability of persecution, Paul looks at the other side of the coin. Evil people and imposters who go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The reference here is to false teachers. Uh, Just as godly people should expect persecution in the world, so also the ungodly and especially false teachers uh, will, their opposition to the truth will intensify. In the moral life, there is no stagnation, right? Uh, We are always moving in one direction or another. We are either becoming, through the work of the Spirit in our lives, more righteous and obedient like Jesus, uh, or we are drifting towards evil, towards unrighteousness. And these individuals, these false teachers, are going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the thought here seems to be that as they deliberately mislead others for the sake of gain, they themselves become more gullible and susceptible to error. They are deceiving, and as a result of deceiving, are themselves being deceived. The idea is that where there is a contempt for truth and a deliberate attempt to misrepresent it for the sake of your own gain, your powers to differentiate between truth and error are diminished. Your mind is clouded. Your eyes are dimmed. You are no longer able to see things clearly, and you become gullible even as you take advantage of others through propagating error. This is a a theme in Scripture, where there is a refusal to love the truth and lean into it. Uh, We are increasingly given over to darkness. If we hate the truth and embrace error, we are increasingly given over to that error. The implication is that whenever God shows you something and you know it to be true, embrace it and respond now. Because you don't know that you'll have that same clarity of vision later on. Those who lie will will themselves become more susceptible to being lied to and embracing error. In the first instance, Paul here speaks about false teachers, but we can extend what he says to lying. Lying is deliberately misrepresenting the facts for the sake of gain. And as we misrepresent the facts for the sake of gain, we need to recognize that we are not only sinning against God, lying is a sin, but we are destroying our own powers to differentiate between truth and error, and we are putting ourselves in a position where we can be more readily deceived. There's a cost to misrepresenting things. As God's people, God is a God of truth, and we want to be a people who are defined by a love for the sanctity of truth. We want our words not to take a step beyond what is strictly true. We want our words to be in strict conformity to the facts. Are you scrupulous about telling the truth? And saying only what you know to be right? Or do you frequently embellish what you say for the sake of gaining some sort of advantage for yourself? Do you love the truth? Are you careful to guard it with your speech 
Or do you often allow things to slip into what you say that is false? What Paul says here about the false teachers suggests that we are actually diminishing our own powers of discernment when we do that. Finally, verses 14 through 17, Paul underscores for Timothy the usefulness of Scripture. The usefulness of Scripture. He tells Timothy, again in verse 14, as he's done several times in this letter in 1 Timothy, to continue in what he has learned and firmly believed, to hold on to that apostolic teaching, the gospel, the good news about the Son of God who came into our world, died, and rose again that we might be reconciled to God. Timothy needs to hold on to that gospel. We especially need to be reminded of that in moments of opposition from the world because it's easy to drift not just morally but theologically in moments of persecution. So we need to be reminded again and again not to drift from the truth but hold on to it. And then Paul gives Timothy two reasons for continuing in the truth. The first one is this, knowing from whom you learned it. Now the word whom in Greek is plural. There are multiple whoms. It's not just one whom, uh, several. uh, Timothy has learned the scriptures from several individuals, Paul being one of them. Obviously, Paul has, as he said in verse 10, he has taught Timothy the truth of the gospel. But this is also a reference to his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They are mentioned at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. And since Paul uh, mentions his acquaintance with Scripture from childhood, it's likely that he includes not just himself in the whom, but also his grandmother and mother. And the idea is this. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the gospel because of the lives, because of the character of the people who taught the gospel to you. Paul has just described his life, his faith and his love. He says, Timothy, look at my life and look at the way my life gives credibility to the gospel. Believe it because of what you've seen it accomplish in my life. Timothy, believe the gospel because of your mother and your grandmother and the beautiful life that the gospel produced in them. Think about the implications of that. Our lives have the ability to make the gospel credible to someone or, conversely, incredible to someone. When we live beautifully, walk in holiness and purity, our lives make Jesus attractive and credible to the people around us. Think about the implications of that as parents. Your words, your attitudes, your actions have the ability to make Christ credible in the eyes of your children. And your sinful, rebellious ways of life make him look implausible, not credible. What that means is that the way we live and the way that we act doesn't just affect us and our relationship with God. As those who publicly identify with Jesus Christ, our lives are continuously communicating something about Jesus, inevitably communicating something about Jesus to those around us. What are we communicating? Are we making Jesus more credible in the eyes of the people around us or less credible in the eyes of the people around us? 
One important reason to trust the gospel is the quality of life that it produced in Paul and Lois and Eunice. But there's another reason. Why should he hold on to the gospel? Verse 15, it's because the gospel is taught in Scripture. You know how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What sacred writings are these? Well, mainly the books of the Old Testament. And these books of the Old Testament, what do they teach? And all of their diversity and richness, what do they teach? These writings are able to make you wise, to give you insight for what? For salvation th through faith in Christ Jesus. What is the Old Testament about? Jesus. You don't have to wait to get to Matthew to find out about Jesus. The whole Bible is fundamentally about the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. His coming into the world, his life, his death, his resurrection, clarifies what it all meant, where it was all heading. With his coming, we see, aha, this is what God is doing in the history of redemption. This is where it's going. It's like that climactic and final puzzle piece that causes you to then see the whole design clearly. That's what the coming of Jesus is like. With his coming, it becomes evident that the Old Testament scriptures are bearing witness to God's salvation through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is the focal point of scripture. And the Old Testament witnesses to Christ, not simply in those prophetic passages that de declare that there is one coming, a Messiah coming, but it witnesses to Christ in a large diversity of ways. It witnesses, witnesses to Christ through those central events in Israel's history, the Exodus, uh, through central institutions in Israel, uh, like the temple, and through central characters like David. In all of these different ways, the Old Testament is anticipating, pointing to, and interpreting Jesus Christ and his coming. Why should Timothy hold on to the gospel? Why should we? Because it's what the scriptures teach. It's what God's revelation in both the, the Old and the New Testament witness to. That means, by the way, that as a Christian, when you read old, the Old Testament, th these are your scriptures pointing to your Savior. The promises of the Old Testament belong to you. Yes, we need to understand what they meant in their original context to Israel, but if we're reading Scripture rightly, we understand that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. These Scriptures belong to the people of God, that is, those who trust in Jesus. So those are the two reasons that Timothy ought to hold on to the gospel. The lives of those who taught it to him, and the fact that the gospel is taught in God's revelation or scripture. And then Paul goes on in verse 16 to further describe the scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. Notice, not parts of it, the parts we like, that the parts that talk about the love of God, those are breathed out by God. The, the bits about the Canaanites, less so. That's not what Paul is saying, right? All of it. All of it in its entirety is breathed out by God, which rules out selective obedience to it. All of it is normative. All of it should be believed. All scripture breathed out by God. It comes from his, it's his mouth. It's inspired by him. What scripture says, God says. We should never rush too quickly beyond that fact. 
what Scripture says, the living God says to us today. And that means when we approach Scripture, we should approach with a sense of reverence and awe that we are entering into the presence of God. We should come ready to believe everything that he tells us and obey everything that he commands. We don't sit in judgment on Scripture. Scripture sits in judgment on us precisely because it comes to us from the mouth of God. And because it does so, everything that is in Scripture is utterly true and reliable, just as God is true and reliable. Scripture has its source in God, and for that reason, because it is breathed out by God, it is profitable or useful for teaching. It's beneficial when it comes to imparting wisdom for life, when it comes to answering the big questions. Where do we come from? How do we not waste our life? What is the meaning of life? What's wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? How can we be fixed? Where is human history going? All of these big questions are revealed by our maker in Scripture and give us wisdom for life. Scripture is profitable when it comes to instructing us, illuminating our understanding. It is profitable when it comes to reproof and correction. Reproof has to do with showing you that you're going the wrong way. It's like that wrong way sign on the highway. Uh, you're going to run into oncoming traffic, turn around, turn around, turn around. Scripture does that. Turn around. If you go this way, you'll destroy yourself. That's reproof. And correction is closely related to reproof. Correction, though, is more positive. It has to do with uh, Scripture taking you, as it were, by the hand and bringing you back into the path of obedience. You've strayed, and now Scripture comes and lays hold of you and brings you back. There is more wrong with you and more wrong with me than we realize. There are depths of sin and folly in our hearts that we can't see. People around us frequently can before we do. But we're blind. And the means that God uses to expose and to correct and to lead us back is his word. His word shows us our folly and then leads us back into the paths of obedience. It's useful for reproof and correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. Scripture gives us God's blueprint for life and then molds our character so we walk in increasing righteousness reflecting the character of Jesus. And precisely because Scripture is profitable or useful in this way, the man of God, the church leader, in this case specifically Timothy, is complete and equipped for every good work. Pastors are equipped for the work of ministry because of all that Paul has just said about Scripture. Because Scripture possesses these qualities, because it is profitable for correction, training in righteousness, and teaching, pastors have everything that they need to care for the flock of Christ. It is through the Word that they are able to provide instruction and correction and direction. This is where a pastor's sufficiency comes from, the Word of God by the way, means that whatever else you expect from pastors, you should expect that they would teach you the Word of God, correct you in light of the Word of God, and help you to grow in righteousness, again, through the Word of God. None of that is done apart from the Word of God. And what is said about the man of God is also true of all believers. Yes, it equips the pastor for every good work, but Scripture 
in a similar way, indeed the same way, equips all of God's people for the good works they've been called to do. Scripture is useful to help us to live wisely and beautifully for the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to internalize this. Because while all of us would say, yes, Scripture is true, yes, it is the Word of God, there exists, I suspect, a kind of suspicion that Scripture is relevant for all of life. It's true in the narrow range of issues that it addresses, but there's a suspicion, is it really relevant, is it really useful for the totality of things that we face in this life? And that's Paul's point. Yes, it's useful in all of these different ways, in correcting us, in instructing us, in molding our character. Many people view Scripture like a street light. Right? It does provide light, but only in a very narrow area, a very, very narrow stretch of the street. Right? That's kind of like Scripture. It's true as far as it goes. Insofar as it describes what we need to know for salvation, Scripture is true. But it's almost like the assumption is it doesn't say much more than that. No, sc- Scripture is not a street light. It is the sun. It illuminates everything, and it is relevant for everything. And that's the kind of confidence we need to bring to the Bible. As we become more familiar with Scripture, and admittedly it takes time, be patient, work at it, but as you become more and more familiar with Scripture, you find the way that it speaks to the thorny questions that we're asking, the existential issues that we're uh, addressing and facing as the people of God. Scripture speaks to all of that. Are you convinced that Scripture is not only true, but useful? Useful in providing answers to life's big questions. Useful in molding your character, correcting you. If you are, one implication of that conviction will be that Scripture is central to your family's life. Isn't, that, isn't this, like, look at verse 16 if you're a parent. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Isn't that exactly what you want for your kids? Like what are you trying to do? Reprove, correct, teach, teaching, train their character in righteousness. Scripture does that with the implication that Scripture needs to be central to your life. That you gather the family around God's word and, and you have conversations about the word of God. And as you do that, God uses his word to correct and impart light and give wisdom for life and so on. Is it central? Is the word of God central in your home? And is it central in your own devotional life? If you're convinced that it's useful in all the ways Paul says it's useful, profitable, then there will be a, a, a life of disciplined reflection on Scripture, reading of Scripture, and intense engagement with Scripture because we recognize that this is what God uses to mold us. We're in December, are we not? We're in that time of year where what do we do? We look back. Uh, we consider the year that has passed, the joys, the sorrows. We reflect And then we also consider the year to come. Where do we need to bring our lives in greater alignment with God's purposes? And as you engage in that work of reflection on the year that has passed, the year to come, one of the things you should consider in light of verse 16 is how can the word of God play a more significant role in your family? What will it take to bring the family around scripture night after night? What do you have to say no to? to make that happen? And how can the word of God have a more central place in your own life? How can you grow in your understanding of it? How can you learn to see Christ on every page of scripture? 
when you recognize that it is useful for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, then you, you will make an effort to give the time and attention to God's word that it deserves. So I encourage you to pause this busy holiday season and consider how this can become increasingly a reality in your life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in your grace and kindness you have given us light to direct us in this world. You've not allow, allowed us to grope in the darkness, but you are graciously leading us uh, and showing us how we ought to live. So we praise and thank you, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts to give us a holy hunger and thirst for more of your word in our lives. Amen.